0: This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobbled together when you curled upon the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now get
0: 15% off your first order at burrow.com/acast. That's 15% off at burrow.com/acast. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, friends. I'm beside myself because this is the first episode of Season 4 we're back. Feels like a very long time. Have you had a lovely summer, I have missed you. Did you miss me? Anyway, look, as ever, you find me in my kitchen. I'm eating the most delicious cream and jam donut that actually one of my friends bought me for my birthday. It was a couple of days ago, but I saved it to eat alone. <laughs> For this first episode, I have none other than Dawn O'Porter joining me for a chat. Sadly, she's not coming to my house as she's in LA. So we're doing it over Zoom. I say sadly, at least I don't have to hoover. Uh, Never ever within this lifetime gonna get tired of cream buns. (laughs) Dawn is a best-selling writer, she's a journalist, she's a television presenter, but best known for her witty novels that centre around ordinary women in extraordinary circumstances, such as her Sunday Times bestseller, The Cows, and her new book, Cat Lady. Before Dawn was on our shelves, she was on our screens presenting documentaries, looking at the more curious side to life, from understanding Japanese geisha culture to chatting with naked people covered in olive oil. Dawn lives in L.A. now, along with her husband, the actor Chris O'Dowd, and their children. She's known for her vintage clothes, her trademark bob and her general elegance. So even though our conversation is online, I better go and get out of me yoga pants. I better finish this too. Oh. Mm. I don't know why I bother with yoga. Dawn Porter, welcome to Comfort Eating.
1: Thanks for having me. So nice to see you. I mean, Grace, I've been begging you to come onto this podcast for quite some time, <laughs> very ungraciously. <laughs> like, there's a number of emails that you've got in capital letters saying, Grace, please, can I come on your podcast?
0: <laughs> lots and lots of exclamation marks. You're on Zoom today. And when I found out you were in Zoom and you couldn't see me, I took my bra off. Good for you, girl. I just thought, she'll understand. If she can just see them waving around, that's fine. At least you're not up close. And I knew you'd
1: understand. I understand. It's, it's honestly, it's, I, I hate bras. I hate bras. They are the bane of my life. Um, I am actually currently wearing one because not wearing one is just a disaster for everyone involved. Are yours going south? Too? might have been south for a very long time. might not only go south, but they just want to hang around my back. <laughs> Get like, my, they just go under my arms. It's just, it's Ooh. so awful. This is what I was really hoping I would say on your podcast. Yeah.
0: <laughs> your new book is called Cat Lady. I know that you are a huge fan of cats, as am I. What do you think is the most extravagant thing you've ever fed your cat
1: oh what a lovely question I mean like crab opened up a crab and picked it out and then just to drop bits of it on the floor for the cat is decadence at its finest I think i <laughs>
0: love it I love that pure love that comes out of them when they get something that they're
1: not used to and they're just like... Oh, they just can't cope. I know. (laughs) Well, mine mine currently, unless it is a tuna-based food, won't even look at it. Shrimp, mackerel, salmon, no, thank you. It has to be tuna-based. They're mad for tuna. Love a tuna.
0: Dawn, this is the part of the show where my guest presents me with their ultimate comfort snack. It's the kind of thing that they eat when there's no one watching, You're over in LA, but with some clever planning with my producer, we both have this dish. So I'm going to still be able to delight in your treat. Mine is lovingly hidden under a tea towel. So you don't know what this is? I have absolutely no idea what this thing is. My reaction is real. Okay. Hang on, I'm putting it over. It's cold. It doesn't feel like it's got any warmth. It doesn't feel like there's been an oven or a microwave near it. I'm open. Oh,
1: what do you see, Grace? It's uh, you've gone for the double potato. It's a double potato whammy. Could never have too much. <laughs>
0: it's a it's a carton of traditional potato salad, the really mayonnaisey type that is really oh my, absolutely delicious. Sorry, I'm opening it. I absolutely and you're are dipping crisps into it. Is this a specific type of crisp?
1: So this is a salt and vinegar. Kettle chip, the daddy of all crisps, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And um, potato salad. Now, crisps and dips is my absolute go-to everything meal. It's my my comfort food all day long. And a few weeks ago, I was cooking for quite a few people on a Sunday and I just made a potato salad and I was grotesquely hungover. And I dipped the crisps into the potato salad and I just discovered a new level of heaven. I'm
0: making such and enthusiastic crunching and sound. I can't hear your answers. I'm sure they're fascinating, but hang on. (laughs) (laughs) Dawn, why did you bring this combination into my life?
1: That. You can get this anywhere. I had this in the fridge last night to eat with you this morning. And when I got home, I went for dinner last night. I... I realised if I leave salt and vinegar kettle chips in my house, they will get eaten by a husband or a child. And I came home last night and they'd eaten it all. So I came up to you today with you na- nachos and coleslaw because I was, that was the closest thing that I could get. <laughs> but I was like, guys, you ate my props. This can't keep happening. But it is delicious. Those people have to go. And that's what I was thinking, yeah. They've overstayed their welcome. No, totally. It's time.
0: You were born in Dumbartonshire in Scotland to parents, Carol and Bill. Mm -hmm. Your parents divorced shortly after you were born. And so you moved with your mother, your older sister, Jane, to Guernsey to live with your grandmother. Now, most of us have heard of Guernsey and the Channel Islands, but I've never been. In fact, I know nothing really about the place. It's almost like it's an imaginary world. Does it really exist? Is it
1: a hoax? It really exists. It really is a real place. It's a very special place. It doesn't feel very real. When I go back there now, I'm like, God, I thought this was normal. I thought this was the world. Um, So I think it's seven by four miles or nine by four miles an incredibly self-sufficient, very pretty little island with a gorgeous town, wonderful beaches, and a financial district because it's a tax what? haven. Well, because a lot of the of banks course. are based there. So people there have, like, big jobs in offices and whatever. The, I mean, that's not my world. But, and, but at the same time, you know, those people will get up and surf at 6 a.m. in the morning. So it's this kind of very... It's an idyllic... It's idyllic. I go back there now and I'm just like, wow, God, I wish... I mean, I did appreciate it at the time, but you see it very differently as a grown-up. It's just so pretty. So we've got
0: three generations of women under one roof. What is life like at Grandma's house?
1: Well, life at Grandma's house was... So my grandparents were Londoners and they were furriers and they were quite clinical people, not particularly creative. So the house itself was quite plane, I guess would be a way to describe it. But we lived there from when I was around one until I was around 10. Life was good there. I mean, you know, I had a lot of grown-ups to give me a lot of attention. I remember the food, the food being like my nan kind of just lots of tins of beans being poured into saucepans and chips and ham. It wasn't a very creative environment, but it was It was nice. It was up until, well, up until it all went to shit when I was seven, when my mum died. Did your gran love cooking things
0: out of tins? Was that what she was into? Was she like a out of tins person? I
1: think so. But then it was, you know, it was the 80s. So it was lots of Finder's crispy pancakes. The thing that I remember that just felt like the height of just culinary joy for me was a tin of chicken and white wine sauce with a bag of Uncle Ben's rice and... They used to, I used to have it in a bowl and she would make me this bag of Uncle Ben's rice and I um and like you know, when you pour something like that out of tin, it just comes out with a thud. And then as it heats up, it would get like all kind of soupy and soft and delicious. And then so that on top of the Uncle Ben's rice. And then I would put literally like a centimetre of salt. And I used to eat it sitting on the floor by the heater with a spoon. And I used to, they they used to say, because I always loved animals so much. They used to say that a dog used to be in the house. I never met it. And that was where the dog sat. So I used to sit on the floor, like just wishing there was a dog eating my tin of chicken. And I I so remember the taste of it now. I just thought it was the most delicious thing. I can taste it in my mouth now. It's like the most evocative, nostalgic taste I can imagine. It takes me right back to sitting on that floor when I was about five, thinking this meal was oh,
0: just the best. It's something so exciting when that that when something flops out of a tin and it's still coagulated, <sighs> and then you stir it into fruition.
1: It's like you did make it. <laughs> It's so satisfying.
0: So, as you're saying, so your mum dies of breast cancer just before your seventh birthday. And Mm -hmm. you and your sister move in with your aunt and your uncle who also live on Guernsey. So... Does life change when you arrive with them? What what kind of people are they?
1: So life changed so dramatically. So we I was it was three years after our mum died that we ended up moving because my grandparents were just getting so old, and it was my sister was kind of getting to that pre-tween, quite difficult stage, and I think it was just all agreed that we needed to go somewhere else. So we went to live with my Auntie Jane and Uncle Tony, who we'd been spending the weekends with for quite a long time. Now, my Auntie Jane and Uncle Tony compared to my grandparents were these very, very artistic, bohemian, party-throwing, fabulous um, food-eating, well-traveled, wonderful people. And they lived in this gorgeous cottage in Guernsey that they basically built themselves. They when they bought it, it was, you know, two rooms in an outside toilet. And over the years they just created it into this incredible house. My uncle had done mosaic walls himself of these kind of beautiful kind of pictures all over the place. It was full of trinkets from their travels. It was full of pets. There was dogs, cats, fish chickens, ducks. And there was my auntie who, food for them was, it brought people together because they were very sociable. That's something my grandparents didn't do. Food when I lived with my grandparents was a um, eat to live situation. And then he move in with my uncle and it's a live, you know, live to eat. My auntie would, you know, lay table every night with a wine glass, not for me, but a water glass, you know, knives of forks laid up. We'd all have a napkin and, and our own colored napkin rings that we put in the napkin basket. It was a different way of sitting at the table. Everything was kind of fresh, kind of Mediterranean cooking. Gorgeous grilled skate with capers ah. and lemon, and all, always a fresh salad. Lots and lots of garlic. Everything was just freshly made. All really good ingredients. And my sister and I just thought this was just unbelievable. It's like my I mean, yeah. So like my taste buds were just like introduced to the world when we moved in there. Did you travel with them? Did you? Yes. So my uncle was a pilot and had a little four-seater plane, which sounds incredibly glamorous. And of course it is. So um, he used to hop us over to France at the weekends. And we spent a lot of time in like uh, Somalo and Dinar and places like that. And we would eat the fruit de la mer so just tears and tears and tears of shellfish which is just the most glorious glorious thing but oysters was a big part of my early life which sounds ridiculous but when you get brought up on an island shellfish is just a big you know it's a big thing it's maybe not I, I don't know if you grew up in London and have such a thing about shellfish as you would when you literally you know stare at the sea when you wake up in the morning part of our culture in Guernsey was to go to the fishmongers and buy like lots of fresh out the sea crab oysters that kind of thing So I was quite used to eating oysters at this point, which my uncle would shuck at home. And we went to France one weekend. And um, my uncle always tells this story. I must have been, yeah, must have been around 10, maybe even before it was one of the weekends that we'd gone to stay with them. I'm sitting in this restaurant and I order six oysters for my starter and then 24 oysters for my main course. <laughs> and apparently, apparently, like, sort of remember this. Other people in the restaurant were just like gathering round like I was doing one of those, like, <laughs> how many pies can you eat competition? <laughs> A really glamorous version. And I just loved pouring oysters down my throat.
0: I never... Really love oysters in that way, like i didn't eat an oyster, I think until I was about twenty four and I skirted around them whenever they were being offered when I first got into the food scene, and what I realize now is I love everything about oysters apart from the very second when it goes down the back of my throat like i I love the ceremony, I love the them arriving. I love preparing them. I like the thing, you know, putting the little, you know, the, the fine shallot dressing on them. <laughs> I love everything. I love the way that they're held in my hand. And it's like, you know, but then I, just at
1: that last minute, I always think snot. No, I know. It is very snotty. It's very <laughs> snotty. I can't eat them anymore. I'm actually now, like, violently allergic to them. I used to, I once opened the Southampton Boat Show with Nick Hancock, Just one of those random things on his CV that did and um, we'd just done a tv show where we'd sailed around the whole um south coast of England from Cornwall and up into the Thames with me Nick Hancock and Richard Madeley. Oh my god. And it was actually an unbelievable experience. But Nick and I just got on like a house on fire. I absolutely mm-hmm. adored him. We used to just make each other laugh so much. We were asked to open the Southampton Boat Show. And so just after we cut the ribbon. And it's one of those situations where I'm just, you know, no one there knows who I am. <laughs> so I'm just like <laughs> <laughs> um, here we go cutting the Southampton ribbon and then they said well let's go to the let's go to the um, champagne and oyster tent afterwards so I was like oh that sounds nice so went and had some oysters and about three hours later I'm sitting um... in a reception of a hotel like gonna get my train back to London and I I was with Nick Hancock's wonderful wife and she just looked at me and she said are you okay and I'm, I'm hallucinating I'm like um, not okay. And she said, I think you've had a dodgy oyster. And I ran and puked. And then all I remember is her dragging me by the hand into all these different reception areas, asking me if there was a hotel room and there weren't. And eventually we found a room in the Holiday Inn. She put me in this room and just said, don't leave, just stay here. And for the next 24 hours, it was ungodly.
0: I mean, I think I think you might be the first person that's come on the podcast and talked about uh, Shitting your pants after, basically. I mean, it
1: was, it was, it was one of those situations where, you know. One end over the bath, one end over the toilet. I oh, don't oh, know why I'm telling you this. And, um, just... and then I just, I was so embarrassed. And I remember just saying, I called downstairs after about 12 hours. and I was like, one pint of Coke, one pint of Diet Coke. Because I didn't know which one I would be able to handle. And I said, just knock on the door and leave it on the floor. And then um, I heard them knock on the door. And I remember like naked, like crawling towards the door, like some bog monster, opening the door and just scooping these pints in with my with my arm and then shutting the door. <laughs> and it was so disgusting. I think uh, they must... It must have sounded from the next room like I was just having the weirdest sex because I was yeah. growling and groaning. And-
0: uh-uh. So back to your childhood days in Guernsey, Tell me about your dad, Bill. We haven't heard much about him yet. He was right at the other end of the country, up in Scotland. How big a part of life was he after your mum died?
1: Really big. We used to go up there for our holidays. My dad was a hotelier and owned restaurants up in Scotland near Loch Lomond. So we used to go up there and... I mean, we spent a lot of time in pubs with drunk old men um, when we were kids. We'd go up there and be behind the bar. I'm sure I drank quite a few baby shams before the age of 11. So compared to what we were eating down in Guernsey, I'd go up to Scotland and it was like old school 80s lentil soup made with salty stock, prawn cocktails, crisps, bacon frazzles. What are they called? The ones that you'd have them behind the bar. Yeah, frazzles. Peanuts. And I don't remember actual meal times, but I could go into the kitchen whenever I wanted and just the chef would give me a plate of scampi and chips. It's basically like
0: Home Alone 2. You're just running around a hotel yeah. all the time yeah. with nobody, no one to watch what you're up to.
1: The level of freedom was extraordinary. I just do not remember having many, yeah, adults watching out for what we were doing. My sister and I had a great time. We'd just break into everyone's hotel rooms and go through their stuff. But, I, you know, there was no such thing as a bedtime. So we'd be in the bar with all the old... I remember there was this guy called Nelson who would eat fish from the fish tank in the bar and then karaoke going on until like two in the morning where Jane and I just there. And I would go back and say to our aunt and uncle what we'd been up to. And they'd be like, what? (laughs)
0: See, when I hear about your auntie and uncle and there are these, bohemians that love entertaining and they've got a plane and they fly to france and they're kind of worldly but also really sociable and then you've got your dad who works in hospitality which is all about having a front on isn't it it's all about you know being out front meeting loads of people and you end up having this life where doesn't
1: surprise me that you then end up wanting to be on the
0: stage. When
1: I look back on my my desire to be on the stage, as you put it, which is a lovely way to put being a massive attention seeker, you know, my after my mum died, it was it was very sad and everyone was very sad and no one really talked about it that much for the years following at all. It wasn't that it was a forbidden subject, we just didn't really talk about it. I remember feeling very very aware of how sad everyone was and that I didn't want to go into the room and say, I want to talk about mummy or I miss her. And instead I would, you know, roly-poly down the stairs and stand up in jazz hands and start telling jokes and just want to make everyone laugh. Almost like I turned into a bit of a jester. And I remember it, but I remember just wanting to make people happy.
0: You went to drama school, but you ended up pursuing a career in television, but behind the camera. And you moved to East London very trendy East London where I'm speaking to you from now and you live with your older sister but you're you're a small island girl what's life like in the big city?
1: I remember the first time I walked around Dulston, which is where we were just being like I have never seen anything like this in my life it was so exciting and Jane and I had this um, weird little flat in the upstairs of an old gospel church. And also, like once a month, it would be at the um, headquarters for the clown association. So there'd be like 200 <sighs> clowns downstairs. But it was the weirdest place. We'd have to kind of walk through the church hall to get up to our flat. So every Sunday morning, when I probably hadn't been to bed, and I'd go downstairs to kind of go and get a fry up from the local calf, and it would be like a full service happening and, you know, a full working <laughs> church. And like morning, morning, morning. <laughs> uh, so
0: this is to twenty-something women in a flat in Hackney.
1: I say this with trepidation. What on earth were you two feeding yourself at home? We were actually very good, influenced by my auntie. We ate a lot of mackerel. We ate mackerel, new potatoes with lots of butter on, and crunchy garlicky salad, which was classic Auntie Jane food. And then lots of Turkish takeout and lots of all those amazing kebab shops around there as well. But yeah, we were quite good. My sister and I are both the same about food. We both love cooking and we love ingredients. And we were back then doing recipes and cooking properly.
0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. You make the move from behind the camera to in front of the camera. You start fronting documentaries about issues like polygamy, polyamory, extreme weight loss. And these are all quite, you know, titillating subjects in some way. And you have to put yourself front and centre. Are these topics things that you're interested in anyway? Are they your choices?
1: They were at the time, yeah. And so when we were coming up with ideas for those docs, we'd have a big list of things that we could possibly do. Obviously, ultimately, it came to what we could get access to. But I was very involved in what we were going to make the shows about. There's a few things that I look at and go, oh, God, I never say that now, but I'm so glad I did it. God, I had, like, my late 20s. I was living this absolutely extraordinary life, making these TV shows they were quite silly maybe now, but just because of the way that we talk about all those subjects now has changed. But back then, it, we weren't talking about it. So I was, I'm so glad. And also, it's a real snapshot of who I was in that time. I don't have to be the same person that I was in my 20s. If I said things then that I wouldn't say now, it's, that's okay. So, no, I love them all.
0: At 29, you make the move from London to LA. Woo! Is the... <laughs> kind of
1: dream move that you see in a Hollywood film. Yeah.
0: How dreamy a move was it?
1: I remember touching down in LA and just thinking, I'm going to be shagging directors, snorting coke at pool parties, living this unbelievable, like glamorous Hollywood life. Didn't happen. I um, My first year in LA, I mean, I spent the first six months making my show. I was out here making a show for Channel 4, so I was very busy but my main social life outside of work was like, I remember this guy in the local coffee bean, which is a you know coffee shop where I'd go and see him every morning to get my coffee. And he was like my big chat of the day. <laughs> I wasn't getting invited to anything. I didn't know how to penetrate this city in any way at all. I found it so difficult. L.A. is one of those towns where it's all very spread out. It's not obvious where to go. And you kind of have to know people to get to things, and I didn't. So, no, no directors and no cocaine and no pool parties. So, really hard
0: early days in LA. You're lonely, you're homesick. I'm always fascinated by what food people take with them when they move abroad. For me, whenever I'm going away for a long time, I take gold blend. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And a jar of sometimes Robertson's raspberry jam. Oh, nice. What is the non-negotiable that goes in your suitcase when you're traveling,
1: when you're going to America? It was always Marmite. I would have jars and jars and jars of Marmite in my bag because I love it and I cannot live without it. I need to know what you're doing with this Marmite. Oh, well, you know, hot buttery toast. But the thing that I really love is I love doing eggs in a cup. So break two eggs into a cup, smash it up, microwave three minutes, like half a teaspoon of Marmite, smash it up. Love that. It's like a really quick breakfast. That's really good. What else? I do look, like putting like a teaspoon of marmite in things like bolognese that I just think it gives that like 80s vibe. <laughs> really it's like, like. a bass note that you're putting in
0: that is that you almost can't hear, but it's a part of your childhood that you're putting into things. This is it's the same with uh, Heinz ketchup. Yeah, so delicious. If you just put a spoon of that into things. It's like you're kind of adding a frequency that you can't quite hear, but it's there. It's, you know, it's fascinating. Up until this point, you're Dawn Porter.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We have to talk about the big O. <laughs> the big egg. Because you're not in LA long before you meet Chris O'Dowd. Mm-hmm. You're now husband, who's oh, you took and added to your surname. look, I've got to say, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, when I heard that you'd done that, I've heard you do some pretty mad things in all the time I've known of you, but that single-handedly, hands down, was one of the maddest things I've ever heard. I thought it was a joke the first few times that I heard. I honestly thought that it was just this thing. And then then I stopped and I thought, she's bloody done it. It's on my
1: passport. It's official. She's
0: actually... That was... (laughs) she's properly gone and done it. Yeah. Like, I i mean, I still, you can see that there's still a
1: sense about me. Like, it is incredible. Everyone just took to it immediately. I know it's mad, isn't it? It's just, it's changing. I mean, I still think it would have been weirder to change my name to Dawn O'Dowd. However, no one seems to think that's really weird to just entirely change your name after you get married. Friends had been calling us Theo Porters for a while as a bit of a joke. And then when it came to it, I was just like,
0: fuck it. How did you get off with Chris? Because I think there's a lot of women that see Chris in the cut of his jib and they're like, we need a point plan of how this happens. How does
1: this come about? Chris actually came to me via Facebook. He messaged me and said, do you want to go bowling? And I said, no, but I'm having a party tonight. I really didn't think anyone was going to come. So I was like, just come to my party and bring all your friends. And he turned up late at about midnight. Now, in LA, everyone's left by nine o'clock. No one stays at parties. So I'm on this dance floor in my friend's Pilates studio that she lent me for um, for my party. I'm dancing with my dad, Aww. another very tall, hairy, Celtish man. And um, I'm dancing with my dad, and Chris walks in, in this lumberjack shirt with his arms spread wide. And he went, hello, I'm Chris O'Dowd, but not in a Scottish accent. And... Um, he didn't also walk in and say hello, I'm Chris or Dad. But he walked in. That's how I remember it. Walked in and then swooped me up, danced with me, and then left. And I remember <sighs> just being like, I'm sorry. <laughs> did anyone else did anyone else see that? Did he hug you? Did he kind of give you a, a cuddle and Chris is huge, so he was Throwing me around. If you dance with Chris, I don't know if you've ever danced with Chris, but he like throws you around the dance floor. So he's spinning you around, lifting you up, chucking you all over the place. And I was just like, I'm quite tall and big, so when a guy makes me feel small, I'm just sold. So um, he did that, and then my sister was staying with me at the time, so I remember waking up in the morning and just saying, Jane, I'm going to marry that guy. I never said that before.
0: You seem to seamlessly switch from making documentaries to being a writer and then writing your first novel, Paper Aeroplanes, in 2013, which is a story about intense female friendships. It was shortlisted for the Waterstones Children's Book of the Year. And there have been five novels since you featured on the Sunday Times bestseller list. And now your new novel Cat Lady is out this month. So, to what extent do you think that you're mining your own life for characters and stories?
1: Uh, getting less so as the more books I write. So, Paper Airplanes was literally an kind of adaptation of my own childhood in Guernsey. The character of Renee is clearly I'm channeling through her, and um, very much like you know she follows the kind of grandparents, the mum dying, all that stuff. Um, and then by the time I got to So Lucky, which was my last book, I was really creating these characters and they they weren't really me at all. And Cat Lady, I mean, obviously I love cats. There's lots that I can relate to about her, but she is mm. a figment of my imagination, if that's the right expression. And I see that the more books that I write, the less and less and less of me is going into them. There'll always be a little bit of me in them. You'll know that from your books as well. There's always something of yourself in them. But I'm enjoying writing so much more now than I've got my, that I've got myself out of the way. I've I yes. kind of I've cleansed myself through fiction and now the fun really starts. It's like there are little things or lot big things that happen to you throughout your life that you get to go very therapeutically put into a character and really iron out in your head. And I've done I've done that multiple times. I
0: always say when when I'm writing books people say was it was it therapeutic? And I always say it's a bit like you're getting a hairball up. Like, you, and then you go, and that was my father's dementia.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. Well, there you go. And I, yeah, and yeah. it comes across in your book, you know, that you've, you're getting something out. Mine would have been writing about my my mum in paper airplanes. Like, that was something that um, I never had any therapy about it. You know, we didn't really talk about it. And you just kind of bank at seven years old, like, unthinkable trauma just goes into your body and I'm putting on the best show on the outside and I don't know where it went and I didn't feel it. I didn't feel it inside me. I didn't feel sad. I really felt like I always used to describe my mum's death like a, there's just a hole that I can't fill inside of myself. When I wrote Paper Airplanes, that need of mine to be the centre of attention and be noticed by everybody and that annoying thing would i would do i couldn't just be in a group of people and just be a part of that group i had to be the funny one i had to keep interrupting people to try and get the attention back onto me so much of that just changed after i wrote paper airplanes like i had just vented i didn't need so much of what i'd craved for so long you lanced that boil yes it, i did it was a real real release i love that book for that reason
0: We follow each other on social media, so I see your life every day, kind of the tidbits of it. And when does this deadline come in? You put all of your energies into it. But are you, what what are you eating along
1: the way then? Are you are you a snacker or do you not eat? Or I usually start the day with eggs on toast and then I have a mid-morning crisps and dips and then I tried to have something healthy-ish for lunch like a salad with something but I love mayonnaise dressings so I feel like I'm all if I'm having the salad I deserve the ranch I've seen you moving about from place to place with
0: Chris if he's working around the world it feels like you go you know you go with him how conscious a decision has it been to just stick with him when he's off for months at a time. You often take the dogs and the cats, and it's like this moving, and I mean this in the loveliest way, moving circus. Everybody goes to that place. Is that a conscious decision in your marriage?
1: Yes, I mean, it was. And then the pandemic made it so that we had to do that, because luckily Chris got some acting work during that time. But because of the two weeks isolation on each side every time you get on a plane, we all had to go. The kids are definitely getting to a point now. My eldest, Art, is going to really struggle with that if we keep doing it. So I think from now on, where possible, the boys and I will stay, whether we're living in LA or London, whatever the future looks like, and Chris will be the one that does the travel. And we also try really hard that if if Chris is the one that's doing all the travelling, you know, we really try not to do more than two weeks. You know, it's nice to get some breaks in a marriage. I think that's really good for a marriage, but he does miss it. He, I always feel a bit bad for him because while I'm in the house with our friends and our kids and just having a good time. He's usually kind of alone in some apartment somewhere and wishing he was at home. So I don't know who really gets the the better deal in that.
0: Your husband is a bona fide movie star. You guys, you walk the red carpets together, you attend award shows Anybody, however, who follows your Instagram account knows that you are still a girl from Guernsey, (laughs) just like you always were. Please tell us, is the world in Hollywood as weird as we imagine it is? And what is peak Hollywood?
1: Oh God, I mean, I just always feel so disappointing when I talk about how normal everyone is. Mm -hmm. Like, especially, you know, our world is very much the comedy world where everyone is a grafter So I don't know Kim Kardashian and I don't really, you know, do like all the kind of reality shows. So it's just I think if I was to enter into that kind of red carpet situation, then I'd feel very different. But the red carpet situation that we find ourselves in is a very... know people who have worked really hard on something who have probably done the comedy circuit for years and everyone's just very real everyone's like most of them are parents and we stand around at where we were at an emmy's party a couple of weeks ago and most of the conversations i had with people were about schools
0: (laughs) have you never Been asked to go to a Scientology convention with Tom Cruise.
1: No, but I would have gone. Like I just my old kind of old school journalist (laughs) brain is just like, I say yes to everything. I say yes to everything. And I was like, No, we've never been asked, which is very disappointing. So what you're saying to
0: me is that you're on the red carpet and I see you looking an absolute million dollars surrounded by celebrities, and then you're actually just talking about the school knit nurse coming or something very
1: very often, yeah. Very often. All dogs. Everyone in loves are really dog towns. So you talk about your dogs a lot. But what about these big Sunday lunches
0: that you've become really famous for? You've said, and I quote, the more people I can feed, the better. And it sounds to me like you're happiest when you have got that situation. You know, you've got everybody around the table and everyone's eating there's real satisfaction in that yeah
1: what 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 is it what what's all that about Don? because to me it sounds like a lot of work it's a lot of work but i you know this is going back to mo- moving into my aunt and uncles and sundays were huge so every sunday we'd either be at their friend's house which have about 12 people or we'd have about 12 to however many people for sunday lunch my auntie would do the whole thing and sundays were all about that and you see from an early age what food does and it brings people together. So when we moved to LA, um, we bought our first house here around the time um, that we got married. And this is a real expat community and it's very transient. There are people here for like two months making a show and then you know lots of people come over from England. They might not know many people here. And so we, we started these kind of Sundays where it was essentially just an open house for whoever was in town. People could bring people. I would cook. But how, what do you cook for 20 people? It's all about the slow-cooked meats. So I would do a huge slow-cooked shoulder of pulled pork and then have buns and slaw and pickles and, you know, that kind of food. If the weather was a bit chillier, I would do, like, huge stews, lots of beef brisket, slow-cooked. And I would have, you know, one thing in my um, casserole dish on the stove, slow-cooking, one thing in the oven, slow-cooking, and then one thing in my slow-cooker, slow-cooking. So I would end up with three like maybe a chicken, a beef and a pork dishes and then just all the fun salady sides. The thing that is giving me a lot
0: of stress about all of this is you invite all these people to your house. How do you get them to go?
1: Well, I don't really want them to. Oh, so don't. before we had the first baby, it would just be, you know, we'd just go until... And sometimes I'd go to bed. And the weird thing about that house was it was a really weird shaped house where you kind of had to walk through my bedroom to get out. And I would—I remember multiple times I would just be in bed and some of the our friends would just be like walking past me asleep. This is what you're looking at. You know, the, this is just before marijuana became legal here, but we were all very much involved in the gummies. And when you just needed to go to bed, you needed to go to bed. Then when we had the baby and I'd go and put the baby to bed at like seven o'clock, people would just naturally... Leave, But there was one night, and I remember, with this Irish actress who I can't remember her name, but Chris knew her. She, for some reason, stayed late. And Chris and I were so, I mean, we were so drunk and high. I remember the three of us sitting outside. And I think Chris, she doesn't drink. She'd just gone teetotal. And I remember just watching Chris. He kept doing impressions of animals. And I was also talking nonsense. And I suddenly got it into my head that she thought that we were trying to have a threesome with her. And oh no. and I was like, oh my god, she thinks we're trying to have a seat. So I'm sitting there getting really paranoid <laughs> she thinks that Chris is like barking, and she's stone cold sober.
0: It's useful to know going forward that you think that the run up to a threesome is Chris making a sound like a chimpanzee, though. I know.
1: And by the way, that's not what she thought. <laughs> but I just I just decided that she might think that we were hitting on her. And apparently, that's that didn't even cross her mind. So, Dawn O
0: Thank you for comfort eating with me. Thank you, Grace. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Jack Claremont. The executive producer is Lucy Greenwell. The music was written by Axel Cocutier. Mixing and sound design was by Solomon King. If you like comfort eating, then please go and leave us a review and you can follow or subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag ComfortEatingPod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort eating delights. This is The Guardian.